0: Welcome back to another episode of Trading Secrets. All of you Bachelor fans out there are going to be excited about this episode. This week's guest is none other than Adam Gottschalk. He was a favorite on Rachel's season in 2017, won the hearts of America when he found Raven, the love of his life on Bachelor in Paradise the same year. While you might know about his personal life through the lens of reality TV, you might be less familiar with his professional career as a successful real estate investor and commercial real estate broker. In college, he studied real estate, development and business management which paid off big time as he has earned actually named top power broker in Dallas magazines ceo edition for many years i actually read all the years that you were named it i'm like i'm not going to list off every year let's just say <laughs> it's a whole hell of a lot he has a lot of valuable insight to share with us about the industry and how potentially you can get in this money making machine the real estate investing side residential and commercial as a side hustle or full time ag thank you so much for being here today, man. We appreciate it.
1: Hey T, it's my pleasure. I know we've talked about it before, but this has been long overdue. So I'm really happy we finally linked up and doing this together.
0: Long, long overdue. In the background, there's tons of DMs and text messages between Adam and I talking business, talking (laughs) shop, seeing what he's up to. Not even too long ago, he called me the other day and he like patched me into a call. He's like, man, you got to check this deal out. So we talk often and it's it's awesome that you can be on uh, Trading Secrets to talk about this industry because commercial, we've had some awesome power luxury real estate brokers from like million dollar listing, California, New York. You are our first commercial real estate broker. It's a damn honor.
1: Uh, I'm glad to be here because um, the one thing I've been really learning following you over the last year and a half, two years on Restart Reset has really been this whole financial literacy just train ride that everyone's going along. So I'm more excited to kind of share my opinion and my values that I kind of bring to the table, but more or less, we're just educating people where it's not rocket science. It's just learning about it early enough and how do you get in and
0: And how do you take it from there, you know? So if I want to go find a nice piece of real estate that I think is in a good location, what are things that you're doing on a checkbox basis that's allowing you to say in your brain, that's a good opportunity?
1: It's a great question. It's a very loaded question too, because everyone (laughs) says like, you know, like I can't find an opportunity that, that everything's outpriced, but you also have to understand that like there are properties and opportunities that are they are out there, they exist. So whether that's you inquiring directly to a property owner or you constantly combing through a Zillow or a Redfin, there are there are free tools out there that allow people the opportunity to find these gems. And so, again, these aren't tools that you necessarily need to pay for. You may have a friend who's a real estate agent that may find something that hits MLS before it hits you know, the, the masses. And for those of you who don't understand what MLS is, that's the... What's it called? Multi-listing services, right? Am I, am I right or wrong? I don't, I've never used MLS. But it's, it's basically the internal database that all residential realtors use to sort through properties where, Jason, you wanted to go find a house that was a four-bedroom, four-bath that was... I don't know, in North Nashville, this is where you plug it into here and they can see everything on a, on a screen in one place.
0: Right, exactly. All right, I appreciate you breaking that all down. It's gonna be very helpful. So you, you refinance, you're looking for your next project and what play did you make?
1: So uh, I, I found this property and what I did is, and this is me just in general, but I like going directly to the listing. If you're not working specifically with an agent, I love going directly to the listing agent because it cuts out the buyer, your agent, the selling agent, the seller. You cut out one person that's in that mix, right? So that way, not only is the listing agent a little more incentivized to maybe work the deal, even though his, his fiduciary duties to the seller itself, but also you alleviate a lot of communication that has to do with your agent and their agent. So I feel like it's just, it's a little more synergistic to work directly with an agent. So I was driving down the street and again, I own property very close by. So I understood the fundamentals of, of where I was living. And I saw a deal, and I called the agent that had the sign, or it said coming soon. So I called the agent on it. Hey, you know, I own a deal right down the street from you. I have some interest in this property. I'd like to c- take a look at it, and and or you know, submit an offer and get some more info on it. So that's kind of where that process started. So I found that deal, and I learned a lot from this one, Jason, because this was a classic case of I think I overbuilt for the neighborhood that was there, and I wanted to make it nice, and I had to keep hold, pull myself back, Adam, you're not living in there. You're not living in there. But I think I overbuilt it. And long story short, I ended up selling the house after commissions and closing costs. For two thousand dollars more than what I paid for it,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's the that's the name of the game, though, right? Like everyone talks about their wins, but not many people talk about their losses, and like that's a tough one. When you put all that time and effort in, it's two thousand bucks more. I do want to talk about another area you 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 just hit on that is absolutely really important for anyone looking out there for side hustle, or you're looking for a property, you're trying to get uh, rental income from cash flow from a property. One thing Adam just t- talked about was direct to
1: listing agent. So Adam, you could touch a little bit more on. On this You can slice and dice it so many different ways. It's very customary, though. The seller, ninety-nine percent of the time, pays the full com- the full six percent commission, and then basically the selling and, and buyers agents both split that. So it's not like you as the buyer are paying you, your buying your buying agent, you know, three percent more than what you you should be paying. But if you can try to you know eliminate that, but there also are a lot of agents out there that provide a lot of value, you know, representing sure. you as a buyer, right? So you know if you're busy all day day in and day out you can't sit in front of a computer and wait for the perfect deal to come across cuz you're making money to put a down payment down for the property right. so it, there's value that other buying agents can bring to the table that that are, that are very very skilled and great at what they do too
0: yeah, I think when you're when this is a side hustle thing, I th- and you're working full time and you have other other obligations, I think using an agent is like almost I don't want to say mandatory, but it's a big part of the business because you're going to get deals that might not even be listed off the table. If this is something you're doing full time, I think going direct and, and making sure that you're pinching every penny to get the best deal, it, it's huge. But so you talked about now you're on two sides of the equation here because you're a residential retail investor uh, investing <laughs> in these in these residential properties to provide cash flow. But then you go on the other side of the coin, you become a commercial real estate broker. Tell me about yeah. what it's like to become a broker, what the pay structure is, and how you started off in
1: that world. Yeah, no, it's a great question. So um, after I moved back to LA, uh, I just kind of got my feet under myself and wanted to figure out what I wanted to do. My younger brother was playing football in Dallas at, at SMU. And so what I wanted to do is I want, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I just, I felt LA at the time when I moved back home after college, I just, LA wasn't the same as what it was like when I was growing up there. And so I wanted to get out. I wanted to try something new. I didn't have a girlfriend, wife, or kids. So I said, screw it. I'm going to visit my brother a couple of times. I enjoy Dallas to me. I tell everyone it's like LA, but with no beach has everything you would want here. And if you want to go to a beach, you could fly an hour and a half to Cancun or Tulum, and guess what? You have one of the best beaches in the world. And so I moved here, and uh, I immediately got into commercial. It's kind of what I wanted to do. It was just that was my my mindset, really. And uh, what I started doing when I was here is I started doing a lot of work in smaller, secondary, tertiary markets. So I spent my first year and a half just traveling the whole state of Texas. I went to the really small markets, like. Amarillo, Lubbock, El Paso, Brownsville, uh, Tyler, Texarkana—you know—you go to all over these little small markets where the big markets, so Dallas, Fort Worth, San Antonio, Austin, were very saturated with a lot of competition. I wanted to go into a market where I knew I could thrive really well, and I could just be a sponge. I need to soak it up, and so I would drive to these markets. I'd see—I I'd drive by, see a property, take a picture of it, and I have a little notepad where I'd write down. You know what's the property address? You know if it was like a uh, a fast food restaurant, was it packed, or was it like a Walgreens that had cars packed in? I'd make little notes and I'd go back to the database and I'd input it in our database. Go to the county appraiser's office; you can find out who owns it, and I'd make notes about it. Add the person you know who was associated with it, and I'd find out like just pertinent information. You're kind of playing like an FBI, you know, private investigator here. You're finding out. Sometimes you find out how much loan the person got on the property, when did they buy it? And then you're connecting dots. You're just kind of going all over the map. So I, that happened over the course of about a year and a half, two years. And then I started to get traction in these markets. I started to get listings. You can make good money representing buyers, but if you have product in the market as a listing agent, the chances of getting paid, one, are higher. And two, you have more control over a deal because if I just represent a buyer and the deal falls apart, you're not getting paid. But if I'm representing a seller, and whether I double end a deal or someone brings a buyer, you know, you're getting something on the deal, right? And so that's what kind of like started to pick up. And I, and as our team started this mold and shift, you know, from Marcus and Milichap, we we left Marcus and that's where we created Strive. And we're, we're very like boutique, but dominant firm that's here in Texas. And so we have uh, about 16 agents that work here now that cover really the whole state of Texas. Uh, me and my team, we focus on like Dallas-Fort Worth, but we have a team of guys who handle you know, the uh, Austin, San Antonio, Houston, and then all of the smaller markets that surround Texas. And we're extremely fortunate to be in this state that's it's doing very well with the development and everything that's going on too in our market.
0: That's really cool. I want to get into your group leaving from Marcus and starting Strive. Before I do so, if someone wants to get into commercial real estate, my understanding of it when you start in the industry, the upside is massive. You kill the elephant, you eat the elephant. But unlike most jobs, you're not going to start off with this like glamorous, gorgeous base salary. What are the benefits and base salary and upside look like? If someone is listening to you, Adam, and they're like, I want to be a commercial real estate broker, what can they expect in their first year to three years generally and I know that's a tough question because we're talking about anywhere in the United States but you know high level if you're giving a seminar on commercial real estate 101 getting into it what does it look like
1: yeah there are very few firms that will give you a salary if they do usually what happens it's kind of like it's more draw, of like almost. a loan yeah yeah it's kind of like a loan but it's it's forgivable and then your splits will kind of change based off that but typically it takes about six months in our business to really get your training, understand it, and really get kind of your first listing and/or do your first transaction. That average takes about six months. And then you have to understand that there's more moving parts to this business than residential because there's, there's more hoops that lenders need to check off the boxes on when it comes to buying an investment property versus a homestead. And so therefore what you do today is a reflection how you get paid 60 to 90 days from now. So a deal can take as short as, I mean, I've closed a deal as fast as two weeks, but it can also be, you know, three months before you close a deal. And a lot of it is you're going to have to have some money saved up, or you take a, a really small draw from a firm. And that's enough to really like basically put a roof over your head and eat ramen noodles for four months. And then after that, you should have enough traction and, and, and it's really it's, it's, it's kind of the push behind your back to get you you know up and off and, and going. But a lot of it has to do with, I think just persistence, grit. It takes uh, an immense amount of hustle and just being able to know. All right, I'm I'm investing in the long term. This is what I'm going to do, and this is how I'm going to do it.
0: Yeah, I mean, grit is such a good one because I have one of my close buddies, a commercial real estate broker in Buffalo. So you really got to be grindy and gritty. But it's not <laughs> not, not Dallas, <laughs> Texas, but the way that he would know, like the relationships he built in the marketplace, he knows everything that's happening before it's happening because he knows all the players, the developers, the accountants, the attorneys, all the people that someone would have to contact and talk to before making a play into commercial real estate. Estate, he's connected with all them and he'll get the call and tell them to go call them. That's the grid of it. What about this, AJ? You talked about the downside, the ramen noodles and tough cash flow. Upside, you sell a property. Suppose the property sells commercial real estate property. Let's say you're in Dallas, it's a beautiful warehouse, whatever it might be, it says for it sells for 10 million bucks. What is typical commission percentage on a property that says sells for like that amount?
1: Sure. So in, in commercial, and a lot of it's in residential too. The rule of thumb is really when it comes to commissions, it's it's a sliding scale. So usually, and a lot of properties, let's call it two million and under is really kind of at a six percent commission. From two to two to three, it's like five percent. For the higher you go, the smaller the percentages. So by the time you get to ten million bucks, it's probably you're probably going to get about two to maybe two and a half would be probably a, a little above market fee for a deal that size. So let's call it. 200000 dollars, you know, just for for a ten million dollar property. And depending on how your structure is, usually in in commercial and residential, you usually have like a mentor who you know teaches you the business or they call him a senior that you kind of work under. Uh, If it was a junior that was really working this deal, that two hundred thousand is your gross, and usually you split that 50 50 with your senior, and then usually that's cut in half again through the house. And the reason why you split with the house is because they provide. Transaction coordinator, a financial analyst. So they give you the software to do your research and so on and so forth. There's overhead to all these things. So at the end of the day, how much? What are you? What are you splitting? You're going from two hundred thousand to a hundred thousand. Yes, yeah, so you're pocketing about fifty thousand dollars from a transaction gross. And a lot of people make this mistake their first year, but. You need to put money away for taxes because it'll bite you in the butt if you don't.
0: (laughs) That is for sure. 1099 will get you. We've had people come on and tell some awful tax stories. So that's a good call. But one thing you talked about, Adam, was the house taking the money. So it sounds like what happened, and I'm just putting it all together here, but you guys had a group of brokers at your last firm that were kicking ass and taking names and said, some of them
1: must've said, let's
0: create our own shop. And is that how Strive started?
1: Yeah. When we when we first started it, that was like the, I think the, the first progression and it's tough, Jason. I think I've heard you talk about this before and I hate talking about this, but my biggest pet peeve is people associating their job titles yeah, yep. to yep. themselves. <laughs> Unfortunately, and I hate this a lot is like, especially in real estate and businesses that are involved in sales, you see someone with the associate title and someone looks at it and the, the, a lot of people sometimes are like, let me talk to the partner. Let me sure. talk to the big guy. Who's your boss, right? Of course. I, I, I didn't like that. And the one thing we want to do is kind of create, I guess I'm going to call it a title, but yeah. we'll call it title as, as just vice president when we first moved over. And then when we started Strive, we started that in 2000, I think it was 16 or 17. So it's been about five years now. And just last year, the the first the two founding partners, Jason Bitterino and Jason Jennifer Pearson, uh, I was lucky enough, and they approached me and basically uh, they promoted me to a partner, which is you know a, a big accolade that everyone wants to achieve because you're you're now part of the company, you're part of the 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 bottom line number that this company can produce. And now rather than being it really for the monetary value. You're here for the ability to grow the company organically, and we want to. We're in growth mode. We want to grow, 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 and create offices across the country at this point and give people opportunities and and financial freedoms that they never really had before.
0: And so as a partner, like so people out there might hear partner at a law firm, partner at CPA, partner now at commercial real estate brokerage house. So for you, when you're a partner, that exactly means that you have ownership in the company and that there is a percentage of the bottom line that will go to you. Can you explain to people like what that title actually does carry in a company like this?
1: You hit the nail right on the head. When you are promoted or you are a partner or a partnership of a company... You have an equity portion within the company and you get a percentage of whatever the net profits are of that company. So as the company does better, you do better. And maybe as time goes on, we have the discussions of uh, uh, getting higher equity shares as a partner as you progress. But the first step is actually getting to that partnership level and then kind of growing from there.
0: Gotcha. All right. Now we have to make this transition because it is mandatory, but I'm looking at this career progression at Strive. You leave to go to Strive, then you work your way up to be a partner. Were you at Strive when you left to go on Bachelorette?
1: Yes. Yeah. Hold on. I'm trying to remember this. Okay. So that was 2017. So at the time, one of the partners and his wife Die Hard bachelor fans. Die Hard, and he was watching the show one one season. He's like, Adam, why aren't you on the show? There are a bunch of just weird guys. He's like, you're a good dude. Like you need to go on the show. He's like, there's no reason you can't go on there. And I had a a friend of mine who nominated me through, I knew through college. And so I got nominated. I ended up getting a call from the producers. And one of my biggest concerns going on the show was, oh man, what am I going to do to my deal flow? Because A, how am I going to explain this to my clients? Yeah. B, what am I going to do about my deal flow? And C, we have our phones taken away for, if you go all the way to the end, it could be what, eight or nine weeks? Yeah. Yeah. So I can't go without a phone for that long. (laughs) ABC, Jason, always be closing. Always. And so uh, I was lucky enough. One of the partners, Jason, he's like Adam. He's like, just go. I'll have I'll tap into your email. I'll take care of everything that comes through the deal flow sheet. You just give me two weeks, and we'll, we'll you hand the baton off to me. I'll handle everything, and you go, and you hopefully find your wife. Just go. And I was like, you know what, man, this is an opportunity. And you know, that it's guys from your season, that same thing happens, right? You go on the show and then you kind of get this fatigue of, I don't want to work anymore. I don't want to do this. And those guys either leave or some firms, they take so much time. They take so much vacation time that they end up just quitting. And luckily I had a lot of support behind me. So when I was on Rachel's season, I originally went on and it wasn't until like week two, I finally had asked the producers. I'm like, Hey, guys, just like check my email, please? I just want to make sure everything's Okay. <laughs> And so, uh, did they allow you to? Yeah, bullshit. I tried so many times because, yeah, you know, I was a corporate
0: banking at that point. They would not let me check it. <laughs> I swear. And I was just a year later. I was like, I gotta check my stuff, and they were like, No, man, sorry. I don't.
1: I think I don't know what it was. I think maybe I was just so like convincing about it. But once we left the mansion to start traveling, the group got a little bit smaller at that point. But if there was an email that needed to get forwarded. Or if I replied, even a client was like, Adam, where are you? But trying to get a hold of you, you have to be, there's a producer looking over my shoulder to make sure I'm not like, Hey, I'm on the, I'm on the bachelorette. Yeah, we're about sure. to go to uh, Geneva, Switzerland, sure, you know? sure. Or, I'm like, this is a client who doesn't watch the show. Like who cares?
0: Yeah. 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 Oh my God. That's so funny.
1: So I had that. And uh, basically, you know, like, honestly, Jason, I tell, I tell Raven this all the time, but like people that are involved in sales or people that are just workaholics being on the bachelorette, and on Paradise was probably one of the best things for my mental health I probably yeah, could have yeah. ever done. And you're talking about cold turkey, your phone gets taken away. And every second, every day, you and I, we check our phones, we look at you know notifications, you're on it, but you have to, because it's part of your, bu- your job sure. and your business. But when you have this thing taken away, you're all of a sudden, you're so engulfed into what's going on you know, on the show. It allows you to kind of disconnect. So I was thankful for that. But I was able to, after the show was done, you know, felt weird checking my phone again and getting back into the mix. But I was lucky enough to have, you know, a great partner and great set of people just really support me and kind of just get back into the work mode. And, and uh, Raven and I tell everyone all the time, the show's great. It gives you the stage to fall in love on. And that's great. But when the lights shut off, it's up to you where you take it from there, right? Oh, yeah. The Bachelorette doesn't give you or me, you know, Hey, you know, thanks for being on the show. Here's uh, $50,000 and go no. take your business to the next level. No,
0: no, they don't get And that's something I think they need to do is do, I think there needs to be a little bit more like training post-show because you step into this world and it could be a whirlwind and it could eat you up and chew you out and spit you up, or it could do great things. Like it's all over the place. And when you got off Rachel season though, what was the gap in time between finishing
1: Rachel's season and having to go back on paradise? uh let's see so i finished her in april i know this because i literally got sent home on my birthday and on april 19th yep (laughs) that happened so and then i would say paradise was it was we also had that goofy season of paradise that had the scandal so like things got put on hold what was that so that had to be end of june so two three months
0: so when you went, because this is why why I ask this, because with me and the bank and stuff, I was gone for two to two and a half months, went back, I was approached to go on Paradise. I ended up not going uh, for a, an array of reasons. But one of them was the bank said like, OK, this was great. We're happy you went. You're happy. You're good. Get back to work. You go now. You're done. Your company again was like, you're still good to go. No worries. You come back and we have a job for you.
1: Yeah, Paradise was a little more convincing because one of the other partners here that was here said, Oh, you can't go on paradise. That's where all the rejects go, and it's just you know that's cool out of you. And I'm like, ah, I don't know, because I originally didn't want to go, Jason. I was like, you know what? I'm I'm ready to just kind of get back to it because I had my fun, and like you said, sure. it's like, hey, let's let's get back to reality, right? But a part of me was also like, well, it, again, because of this the scandal and everything, kind of got condensed. Uh, the the main producer was like, hey, it's going to be about two weeks max if you uh-huh. go. So you know, maybe just make the most of it. And I'm like, okay, well, let's. Ch- let's let's roll the dice this time around. Let's just see if I can have some fun with it. There, and the one reason why I like the format of Paradise is because instead of, you know, this is like on your season, instead of 25 guys and one girl, yeah. you've got, you know, 10 guys, 15 girls, and it's more of a matchmaker, not, Hey, dog eat dog. Let's figure out where this goes. Yeah, totally. A little bit more flow to that for sure. I like it. And so for that reason, I did it. And uh, the one partner was like, Dude, this is not where you need to go. And I'm like, just please just, just get my back for 10 more days and we'll figure it out. So you're in both shows, you're pretty much guaranteed job security. Yeah. I had which That's was huge, again huge. that was huge. very fortunate.
0: That's huge. And so do you think when you look at like, okay, as we're talking business and now a little bit in bachelor in paradise and we moved to social media, when you look at other paradise shows, it's see and I haven't done the research. I got to get bachelor data on to tell me all this, but I would, I would imagine that social media following grew at a much greater rate in other paradise shows than the one that you were on because of the scandal and the short in time period. Do you have the same feeling that that case is
1: true? I, I agree with that. I Raven and I have also talked about this. This is my personal opinion. Sure. And people can agree with me. They can disagree. I think that JoJo's season was the first year that social media became very prominent on the show. And that's where the show, both Paradise and the season itself, Bachelor and Nick Viall season, was the first seasons where social media started to become very mainstream, it started to pick up a lot of... Uh, the content that was being delivered yep. from the show, and I think right after our season scandal and there are a bunch of other factors just going to play. I think that maybe just the honeymoon phase of it just started to naturally kind of, kind of die off. But I think those seasons Paradise. I everyone jokes around it about this all the time, but I think my first episode of Paradise, I had more airtime on episode one that I did cumulative on my whole season. <laughs> <laughs> that attributes to, I would say, you know, the following of it. But you know, the, the followers is, is, is just a byproduct of of the show. I love what you have done with Restart, and you've kind of taken this this leap of faith off your personal profile to really more or less just educate people. And I think, like, if you could just be a voice, and I've I've seen videos that's on TikTok or Instagram, and it just says. Hey, if you have something you want to share, share it because there might be someone out there who has a question about it, or it's a life hack where someone didn't know that if you put baking soda and apple cider vinegar down a sink, it's going to make it <laughs> smell good as new, right?
0: Hundred percent, hundred percent. You know, I mean, you put it, put value out there, and things that like you're passionate about that that probably correlate to like your your natural, whether it's your work experience or your education, and you have no idea like what will come from it. So that that's what we kind of did with Restart. We, we built that for for you, man when you. You got off the show, was it easier or harder to build back your commercial real estate portfolio? Like, was that easy because people you're recognizable and you're from the show, or did that actually present challenges at work?
1: A little bit of both. I would say the the benefits were there were some times where someone would, I would uh, we'd have our annual conference. It's in Vegas, you might be familiar with it, but it's like a big real estate conference that's in Vegas. And the season, the year I got off, I had random people look at me and they're like, Adam? And I would look at them and they'd say, Hey, did have we met before? And I just play it off. I'm like, oh, I think we met here last year. And they're like, no, I, I swear I've seen you before somewhere. And they probably saw the show with their wife or girlfriend or whatever at some yeah. point. And I, I've never the show, I I never really used it as a platform to you know help differentiate myself from another, you know, agent or something. I'm very thankful for the opportunity and it led me to a wonderful woman and a wife but i i wouldn't say i it's really really benefited me like nobody's dad has called me up and said Hey, Adam, I saw you on the show and, you know, I own a Walgreens. It's uh, in uptown Dallas and, you know, I want you to sell it and I'll let you take a, you know, 10% fee because you're, you're such a good looking guy or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I, I felt that in corporate banking too. So I, I was
0: like living in two different worlds. Like I'd go to these, you know, CFO offices or whatever, and I'm like begging them to meet with me and they would have like, you know, they didn't know any about the show or anything. So like, I, I'd like be begging them to meet with me and then I would leave the office and they'd call me and be like, Hey, uh, one of our people just said you were on some show. Like we, they just saw you in the office. Like, what is this about? Are we, I don't know. I thought you were here for this. And it was like this wild world of living both lives. Just crazy. But yeah, and I think in our worlds, it's or in that that type of environment. I think if you're selling residential real estate, it'd be a lot different than commercial real estate.
1: Yeah, I'll totally, Totally, totally different ballpark. Seguing the conversation like into that, when you talk about that stuff, one thing I, I tell a lot of people about is no matter what, part of real estate you're going to be into, you need to be obsessed with what you do. What I mean by that is when I'm driving down a street and I'm looking at properties, I can look down the street and know, oh, I know this guy owns this. I know that person owns this. Oh, this lease has two years left on it. Oh, this tenant's about to leave and that person's going to be screwed trying to backfill it or whatever the case may be. The other thing you said, Adam, was just how that you're
0: Passionately, like almost so. You're just—I don't want to say the word obsessed, but you're you're so passionate about it. I've never talked to one real estate broker, residential or commercial, that is successful at what they do and that doesn't know the lay of their land. Who's over here? Who bought this? When they bought it? At what developers working on this property? Anyone who's successful does that. Now it's a good segue, though, to talk about someone like Raven, who, based on what you've told me, I don't want to assume she doesn't know the lay of the land. She doesn't know the developers in every area and who bought what at what dollar rate and what cap rate and what rent roll. But she still was able to take cash flow from her main job and work and and entrepreneurship to start that. Can you tell us a little bit about how someone that doesn't have all the knowledge was still able to own a commercial real estate property and how she uses that?
1: Raven got to the point where I'm very thankful that she's an extreme frugal individual and she does not spend a ton of money on handbags and designer stuff and and trips and just a bunch of crap <laughs> um, and so uh, you know Raven got to the point where she was doing a bunch of ads and that account started to accumulate higher and higher and higher and higher and I'm like and Raven came to me one day and was like Adam what do I do with this what how can I multiply this how can I expand this? And again, I'm, I'm biased in real estate because I do it every day. But there are other avenues you could take with financial planners or you know, uh, stockbrokers or you know uh, people of that nature. But she came to me and was like, Adam, I want to put this to work. And so being the guy that I am, there was a property that was really close to her hometown in Arkansas. And there was a deal that I saw where I co-called the guy. And luckily enough, the guy said, well, the guy lived in Kansas. And he said, well... You know, it's funny you called because I own a mobile home park here and I'm trying to pour a big pad of concrete so all these, you know, RV trucks can pull up and do their electric hookups. And I need to free up some capital for it. And I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to, to sell my deal I have. And so I said, okay, well, can you send me the lease and let's take a look at it and I'll, I'll provide you with pricing on it. And uh, so he sent over the lease. I said, Hey, look, based off of the condition of the building, it's going to need X, Y, and Z to fix it up and make it look nice. You know, we're we're willing to give you X. And the guy was like, ah, it's a little less than what I want, but let me talk to my son. I'll get back to you the next day. And so, um, he called me the next day and was like, all right, you got a deal. And so, uh, put the deal under contract and, uh, Raven put, you know, this ad money that she had or this money she worked towards for such a long time. I I would say she probably accumulated over the year and year and a half. And again, everyone wants this instant gratification, instant gratification. You guys got to understand wealth is, married, is, is measured in time, right? Money is, 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 ma- is measured very quickly. You're like, hey, you know, uh, how much do you have? Boom, I got a hundred bucks. But if you're wealthy, that type of money will compound over itself in the long term. And so we wanted to create a vehicle that Raven can park her money into that's going to spin off cash flow. And that money is used to pay for her car payment. It's used to pay for... Shopping expenses. It's used to pay for her car insurance, right? So we wanted to use that and also the the, the value that uh, real estate can appreciate over time as well. It's very, very beneficial and kind of get her foot in the door to start that as early as possible.
0: Yeah, I think it's such a great example because there's two things that are so important in anyone's day to day, I would say, wealth building. Uh, you want cash flow. So what is cash flow? Cash flow could be a lot of things. It could be your W 2 job, it could be influencing, right? Cash comes in. It allows you to do stuff. The big thing where people miss is creating equity value. So you got your cash flow. How are you taking that and multiplying it? And having equity value for uh, Raven and getting in commercial real estate when she just not really familiar with commercial real estate is unbelievable. The other thing, AG, is I have to assume once she starts this real estate project and she creates the LLC with it, there's also some Tax incentives with write-offs and, and maybe things that she might have not otherwise had. So she's gaining uh, equity in the actual commercial real estate. She has rent cash flow, so she's getting ca- excess cash versus what rent is after paying uh, any type of lender mortgage. And on top of it, there are tax strategies you can use and deploy once you have real estate. I mean, it's a it's a three hit piece right there. It's huge.
1: Yeah, and I'm her agent who represented her on the transaction. I'm also the Part property manager, but you know, sometimes you got to put in a lot of the elbow grease up front, you know, to get something up and off and going. And it's taken a year now. And the property had some issues with some mold damage, but we got everything kind of remediated and everything's taken care of. But now it's it's the Taj Mahal of, of the area. And we got it to a point now where it's pretty self-sufficient, it's stabilized. And now the trick is to get the tenant to extend their lease for five to ten years more. And at that point either sell it and then you do a 1031 de- tax deferred exchange into another deal or you know sell it, pay the tax on it, and then figure out if she wants to pay down any other liabilities that she may want to. But I think the, the game plan with what we're trying to achieve is sell it and then roll that into a higher deal, right? You always want to kind of level up on each deal that you buy. So that's the that's the, the strategy we try to kind of go after now.
0: And so as anyone's like processing this, the reason they want to lock that 10-year 10 tenant up is because once that tenant is locked up, it's obviously more advantageous to go to the market and say, hey, here's your piece of real estate. And here's your tenant who just signed a 10-year commitment. You can buy this sitting at home, knowing that for 10 years, as long as they stay in business, you're good to go. I mean, that that is huge. What type of appreciation has she seen since buying it versus today for like the actual building value? Is it pretty significant?
1: Well it's a little tough because commercial depending if it's an owner user play or it's an income producing property. and what I mean by that is owner user would be uh, a very good example would be if a doctor owned his own doctor single tenant office building yeah. and then uh, he wanted to sell his practice in the building and the building's vacant. That's an owner user. An income producing property like this so I'm going to use just use an example like a Walgreens yeah. um, a Walgreens has a lease that's attached to it as time goes on. That lease dwindles down, and when that lease dwindles down, your level of risk goes up. AKA your cap rate, your cap rate goes up because the tenant could potentially leave at the end of that term. And now you're now you're you're left with a vacant building that you have to spend money to spend on uh, tenant improvement costs. You have to spend on a leasing commission. You have to spend on remodeling it to get it to that point. And so that's the catch twenty two with retail property that you kind of run into, but. Ideally, you still have appreciation, but it's not like a residential house. So your your value is really in the lease term that's there. And that's how much time you know you're gonna have that's gonna cash flow the property for X amount of years. So if you have a 10-year lease, it looks really good because you know you have essentially 10 years of guaranteed income from a publicly traded company where the odds of them going bankrupt or going vacant is gonna be slim to none, right? Like Walgreens. Yep. or you have a year or two years left on the lease where the tenant may come to you and say you know thanks for being a landlord the last hex amount of years you know thanks so much per our lease we're gonna we're gonna vacate or we want a big rent reduction in exchange for some term and then maybe you can get creative with trying to figure out what to do with them at that point
0: because the the ultimate nightmare situation in commercial real estate is that you have a nice property and you have a ton of square feet and you have a monster mortgage to pay, and your tenant's gone, and you have no one that's paying that mortgage, right? Like That is the ultimate disaster, correct?
1: Very much. And that's why when we talked about lenders and commercial transactions, there's a lot more that there's a lot of infrastructure that goes into place. That's why commercial typically has... That's non-owner user occupied. I know a lot of people maybe watch your show that see the... The guys on Instagram or TikTok that say, "Hey, buy a duplex, live in one half of it, and then lease yeah. out the other half," and you could do that. That's great sure. because you can only you can only put down three percent. But when you talk about retail, on, not owner- user occupied, sometimes you got to put minimum of twenty percent down, right. and then you know there has to be enough. They call it DCR debt coverage ratio, where your rental income that's coming in minus your mortgage or your note. There needs to be a set amount left behind as a reserve. So that way, tenant leaves, you can float yourself for a little bit of time.
0: I love it. I mean, this has been this has been a great episode, Adam. This is one where people are gonna literally listen and they're gonna need a pad of paper or their note app out because there's so many solid takeaways that people can deploy into their real estate uh, investing strategies. Before we let you go, I gotta get a trading secret. Before I do that, I got a couple rapid fire questions for you if you're ready. I'm ready. All right. So the first one is what is your dream property to own? One day would you be like, This is the property that I dreamed to own one day.
1: Wow. I would say it would be a very high profile property that's on a hard, very good thoroughfare or an intersection somewhere, or a, a very high profile shopping center in a, in a, very dense neighborhood in a, in a great growing city. In Dallas, you can certainly accomplish that. I love Nashville. Nashville's on fire too. It's a tax-free state too. So I love investing in tax-free states. But if it's here in your backyard, it's much easier to keep an eye on it. And obviously you just know it better.
0: I love it. I would tell you right here, right now, off this rapid fire record, I would move to Dallas tomorrow if Caitlin was willing to do so. I love that city. All right. Tools and resources. You mentioned Redfin and Zillow. What are some other tools and resources you use on a day-to-day basis or ones you would suggest for someone that's looking to get maybe into their own type of real estate and or commercial real estate.
1: Ooh. So there are some tools that you can purchase. One is called Land Vision or Land Glide, both of which have like iPhone app capability. And what those allow you to do is basically hop we'll on your phone like a Google Maps. You can see a property in the lot line on it. You can click it, and it'll say owner is Jason Tardik. You purchased it on this date. It won't give you a phone number, but you can maybe do a reverse phone number search through either Google or some free websites that are out there to find a telephone number. And then you can essentially, you know, cold call or call that person to inquire about the property.
0: Okay. Got it. There's some good resources there. All right. How much do you think? I know this is a tough question. It's a tough one, but how much, if someone wanted to get started into any form of, of real estate investing, what amount do you think they need to get started?
1: that Question just varies. I would say the bare minimum, and this is a very well-built property that that's not going to be extreme high risk. is probably going to be about six hundred thousand dollars. So you're going to need, you know, twenty percent down. So I would say very safe number. You're going to need about a hundred to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That is enough to open the pool of multiple parts of commercial retail property. Now this isn't doesn't include industrial or uh multifamily or office use, I would say for a very good middle of the road property. That you know that you're going to be very comfortable purchasing anywhere from about 100000
0: to $120,000. I love it. Great answer. And what we'll do also in the recap, guys, we're going to put some REITs out there. So if you don't have the 125, 150000 you can actually invest in publicly traded companies that only invest in commercial real estate. So it can, you can at least get in the game for a little bit, but that is a great breakdown, uh, AG. But man, before we let you go, this has been a great, this is literally a pen and pad session that people are actually 100% going to take into account for what they're doing and how they're doing it. But before we let you go, we got to get a trading secret. So some type of secret from your industry, real estate, financial moves you've made that you know you just you just can't learn in a textbook. You can't find in a classroom. What would your trading
1: secret, AG, be? Mm, Jason, you're getting me good. I would first thing I'm going to say is we're going to have to do a part two on this because there's lots of layers to this, right? I would say my biggest trade secret is it's two parts. One is you need to find a firm or a mentor that you really click with. It's very, very rare to find someone that you can really ride and, and, the, par- and the partners that I'm fortunate to have here within Strive. You got to have really good partners that are willing to teach you and, and be a giver and include you in on transactions and not be selfish about the dollar amount, but but, but more or less kind of set you up long term. And the second part to that is create banking relationships with small community banks. I think a lot of people overlook that and they go, well, I just need to deal with the JP Morgans, this, the, the Bank of Americas and the Wells Fargos of the world. But in retrospect, those smaller banks can either lend to you at a very similar interest rate, um, but they can also jump through hoops where that that you know that other banks can't. And the first deal that I did, Jason, I went to four banks and I got rejected on four different banks. And I went to the fifth one. They were like, we like this deal and we like you and we're banking on it because we see your vision behind it. Mm -hmm. And so it's very important for people to utilize these community banks, not only for home mortgages, but maybe if you want to buy and flip a house and, and utilize these small community banks, very, very important to leverage those as, there's a lot of untapped capital that you can really you can get into in those ones too.
0: That is awesome. And we have heard this theme too through uh, the founder of Netflix who was on Adam. And I mean, one, one thing he talked about fundraising in a small business is OPM, other people's money. And banks come into OPM too. And so anyone out there that is very unfamiliar with uh, commercial real estate investing, it is so pertinent to get a good lender. If you can't get the money or debt, like Adam's saying, you won't get the deal done. And as a guy who used to be a lender, and I'll talk about this a little bit in the recap, we were good at certain things. We sucked at commercial real estate. So if you came to us, in my opinion, we did. If you came to us with a great deal, we could have shattered your dreams by saying, you're not going to do it. And if you didn't go to other banks, like AG suggesting, your dreams might be shattered. And that deal that could have been absolutely massive might have not gotten done. So... Adam, this has been great. I mean, you're right. We could do a whole series. Mean, we could do a masterclass because we haven't even touched. This is literally just scratching the surface of residential real estate, commercial real estate, touched a little bit on industrial space, retail space, office space. I mean, there's so much more to cover, but we've already gone well over our time limit. So man, we appreciate uh, we appreciate having you on. If people want a little bit more of AG in their lives, whether it's just to follow your personal story with Raven or to learn more about business, where can they find everything you got going on?
1: You can find me pretty much Instagram. uh, That's just basically at Adam Gottschalk, G-O-T-T-S, and then chalk like chalk for blackboard. And uh, I'm trying to get more into the brand of what I'm trying to do on my social media. So feel free to ask me questions. I'm an open book. I try to. I'm trying my best to be more proactive. Jason, I know you and I have always talked about like how I should present it, but. I just got to do it. And I know it's out there, but I think financial literacy is becoming more and more pertinent and promising in in our world. So I'm going to start doing that more. And that's my promise to you and the restart community. Thank you for having me again, man. It's been long overdue and can't wait to link up with you the next time. And I'm a huge follower, man. So every time you post something, I'm I'm there and uh, you got my votes, man. So thank you so much. You're the man, AJ. We appreciate it. Thank you, man.
0: Ding, ding, ding. We are closing in the bell to the Adam G podcast with the one and only David Arduin. You know his name by now, don't even need to say it. But this is the first time ever, ever we are recapping live. We are here at the Del Lago Casino in Waterloo, New York. It's a beautiful thing. So, David, first of all, it's great to see you. Second of all, what'd you think? I know you probably have a shit ton of questions because this was a technical episode.
2: Yeah, first of all, fantastic to be here. Anytime we can get together, is a great time. First time we've ever podcast together in person. So uh, it's just a lot of fun. It's good to see you, Jay. Likewise, baby. Uh, so this episode, you hit the nail on the head. It felt like I was on my first day of college taking a real estate 101 course. <laughs> and you walk out of the class and you say, Google, how to switch a major. Uh, because <laughs> it was so over my head. But we read the reviews that people will leave online. Everyone yep. wants a real estate episode. So I thought this was really good, like a low level on high level. So I thought it was a really, really good episode.
0: Nice. So yeah, like, was this like, you know, crazy pop culture, like wild entertainment, you know, Rob deerdeck makes 125K an episode. Uh, no, but this was exactly what people wanted. They wanted someone who's in the market, who crushes the market in commercial real estate and residential real estate, and could just talk through it. And I think that's what we got, which was awesome.
2: Yeah, I mean you know, you touch on a little bit about his bachelor life pre and post and to know that he was doing the same thing. You just don't see that very often, especially to the levels of success that he did it. And you talked about how this isn't really an industry that benefits from being on the show. I know other industries that people go on the show and it really Mm -hmm. helps them in the workplace. This isn't, he's truly like a master of what he does. He has grinded to get where he's gotten and um, really impressive with some of his like, you know, just life takeaway mindset type of skills that he has. But there's a laundry list of definitions that the Curious Canadian <laughs> has no clue what, they're, what they are. So... Fire away. If you want fire away, okay. So first off, I'm going to preface this. I'm a homeowner. Okay. I've gone through all, a, a lot of these things sure. in the process. So embarrassing that we can go through these things in our lives and have them complete and done and be so ill-educated on what things are. Yeah, I see what you're saying. First yeah. example. We have the pot. <laughs> underwriting. Underwriting. So, what is it you're saying? Yeah, like so, I know that, oh, it's getting, it's with
0: the underwriter. I'm like, okay, sure. great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I actually did a year as an underwriter, but underwriting applies to everything, not just mortgages. And when I say everything, I mean like think about life insurance. You have to have that underwritten. Essentially, what a underwriter is doing is they are assessing the risk of whatever the deal is on the table. And based on the risk, they're determining and working on what the rate should be, if it should be approved, and if it makes sense. So someone like Adam is working with a client, or let's say Jason is a banker. I work with the client. I have to submit the deal and pitch it to underwriting. So there's two different departments, like in, for example, this one, a bank. And the underwriter will say, Jason, based on the way you've pitched this company, I will approve the bank's money to go out and lend it to them. Now, if I have someone who wants money from the bank, and I go to pitch it to the underwriter, and they say no, this is too risky for us. It does not meet the criteria we want as a bank. We can't get the return based on the risk. The underwriter will say no. So they'll determine if the deal gets approved and what it, the structure will be.
2: If you are an underwriter, how do you become one? Like what's the track? Do you go to school for law? Do you go to school for business? No, it's very analytical based.
0: So some people will just have other degrees and they'll get into like junior analyst roles, but if you're an underwriter, you're you're crunching numbers and you're doing analytical work on all sorts of things related to the deal to see if it makes sense for the company to do the deal or not.
2: Okay. Next one that could apply to me with the way that the market is going, cash out refi in terms of refinance. Huge. I mean, this is the name of the game
0: in real estate. You use other people's debt to build onto your portfolio and continue to grow. That's how you do it. Bank money is so cheap right now. What is a cash out refi? Exactly what it sounds like. You're taking equity, so you're cashing out based on the equity you have in the property. So I'm sorry, you're taking cash out based on equity that's been generated in the property. And it's usually going to be above the sum of the current loan note, right? I'll give you an example. Can we use my house as an example? Let's use your house
2: as an example. Bought the house a year and a half ago, $360,000. Okay. Probably done a few things to it. Appraisal, I could probably get it for probably put it on the market in the market today for four sixty. Okay, pretty good for a year and a half. Pretty good. Is there a cash out refi
0: option for this? This is a perfect scenario. Let's so go. it was three sixty. The value of the house is now four
2: sixty. Mm-hmm. What's the balance of your loan note around? two, I put, I put 20% down. So it was about $80,000 down. Um, Most of it I've paid down as interest on the first year of the mortgage. So I think it's down to like 260. Okay. So so
0: you have a house that's valued at 460,000, but you have a loan note that's only 260,000, right? Yeah. So what we would do is we're going to take out the, the equity of your house is 460. If I'm an underwriter, I'll say that I'm gonna give you 80% of the value of your home. So, how do you determine that? You said 460. Mm-hmm. I just multiply it times 80%. That's $368,000. And I will give you a loan up to $368,000. So, you come to the bank, Jason comes in, I give you $368,000, and I'm gonna give it to you at a rate lower than your existing note that has $260,000 balance. You say, no brainer, right? You take the $368, you pay off that other note then what's the difference? You now have $108,000 do whatever the hell you want to do. You can go invest into a company. You can go buy another piece of real estate. You could buy commercial real estate, right? That's how people do it. They build equity in the homes based on appreciation value, and they take the equity out, they get the cash, and they go do more with it.
2: Uh, that was the deepest Tardik and I have ever stared into each other's eyes <laughs> during an explanation because he's like, uh, we see it firing right Did it now. make sense though? Yeah, oh yeah so 100%. So you could pull out 108,000 bucks of your home right now. The only part that doesn't make sense is the fact that it's so difficult to understand and maybe not difficult to understand, but like hidden from us. And so it's like, it sounds so much like I want to go do it tomorrow and I probably should. I just need something some plan to invest it in. You know yeah, what I mean. You
0: would want a plan and reason for the cash before yes. you just took it out and had a, a greater loan. Essentially.
2: All right. Uh, next thing is rent roll. Okay. okay. What is rent roll? I heard. I heard rent roll come so, up a couple times.
0: So it's literally it's just if you have a commercial property. Let's say you have, let's stay basic here. So let's say you have a multi-family. I don't know multi-family. Property, right? So there's many families that live in the property. Apartment complex, condominiums. Yeah. So you got condominiums or apartment complex. Let's say there's 10 apartments and they each pay rent. You will literally have like an itemized profit and loss that'll say like apartment one, what they're paying in rent. Apartment two, what they're paying in rent. And it gives you an idea of what the total uh, income is
2: per unit. Okay. That makes sense. What about a cap rate?
0: So cap rate is the rate of return. Just think in, in commercial real estate, if you guys hear the word cap rate, like, oh, that building's cap rate of 6.2, you'll make 6.2%. How do you figure it out? You figure it out. It's the net operating income divided by the current market value of the property. So if the market value of the property is up, uh, obviously that is like, if you're paying more, you're going to get less return, right? So these are the things you want to think about before buying the buying the um, property. Now,
2: go ahead. You got I know, have an on idea. Top your head my jaw dropped it. a little bit. You know how there's scientific calculators? Oh, yeah. To help you figure out like sine, cosine, like all that stuff showing sure. up? Is there a real estate calculator? There is a finance calculator. Like in, when you were in like in my MBA, you had
0: to have like a finance calculator. Huh. Yeah. Huh. But but there could be... Okay, so I see where you're going with this. Yeah. There could be like a basic ass that like finance calculator that's not like MBA driven, but it's like mortgage... Cap rate, you press the button, and it gets it done for you. Refi. Like in, you say cap rate, right? Yeah. You just hit it, and the calculator says, like, input the value of the property. Input operating income. There's your cap rate. Genius. Ideas. Adventures.com.
2: All right, last definition, then we're going to get into a couple questions. I might need this tomorrow okay. uh, after our first night together since my wedding. Uh, hair that, of the but? dog? <laughs> but uh, a couple references was hair on a deal. Hair on a deal. Hair, hair on a deal. Okay, so, let's pretend that? this. So
0: I already gave you the example. I'm a banker. I got to go pitch underwriting, why we should do the deal. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you an example of what hair on the deal would be. Let's say you are a company, David, and you sell hockey sticks. Okay. But 90% of all your sales go through a store in Buffalo, New York. Okay. So 90% of your revenue is generated by this one store on Main Street in New York, but they murder it. It's a great store. If I'm the banker, and my underwriter is going to call me and say, Jason... This has got hair on the deal. This is choppy. I don't know if I can lend to David. Well, why, Underwriter? Because there's one company that's providing all David sales. If that company goes out of business, David's revenue has gone 90%. And the loan we give him, he's not going to pay us back. That's hair on the deal. Okay. So hair on the deal are things that are creating some type
2: of challenge for the deal to get structured or completed. All right. We're going to get into a couple questions really quick. Fire away. How critical is a tenant in a commercial real estate deal? I mean, it's massive, right? So think about this. If I have an empty building and I can have a relationship
0: with someone at Walgreens, like he mentioned, and have Walgreens put in a 10-year lease there, that value of that property, you know, whatever. I'm just saying, the Tom, I had quadruples. Yeah. You had an empty building generating no revenue. All I did was I have my guy who I'm friends with at Walgreens say, hey, this is Perfect. Obviously, this is more complicated than this guy's. But you get Walgreens in there, that property goes up significantly. So the value of, especially like a a retail space like that, it's all based on your customer and how long of a lease they've signed. It's not like residential where the property is instantly valued based on like where it is, Mm. how many bedrooms it has. It's really based on the tenant inside of it. And yes, of course, the class real estate
2: matters, but that's the high level answer. Okay, that was an easy one. Uh, This one, uh, REIT. REIT. R-E-I-T. What is it? And what is an example of one that I can invest in?
0: It's a real estate investment trust. If you can't actually go out and buy a piece of property today because you don't have the money, what you could do is go buy a publicly traded REIT. I'll give you one right now that I like that you can buy for, what is it trading? $10.71. You can own one share of a REIT called New Residential Investment Corp. N-R-Z. It's a residential REIT. That you can go buy right now, and now you can say you're in the market of real estate for 10 points, $10. $10.71. All right.
2: I want your take on one last thing, yeah. and then I got one rapid fire for you. He brought up titles, and okay. it's something that we haven't really dove too deep into in trading secrets. Um, but I'm curious your take on how he said like people attach themselves with titles. And then I have like um an example, a real-world example of something like this that I think is wild. But uh, I want to hear your overall thoughts on just your perception of how titles have changed human behavior or viewed by human behavior in 2022 i mean
0: it's we this could be a whole podcast because like even just like if you say you're an influencer, people are like, you're a fucking joke buddy, yeah. right? You go to a networking event, say I'm a financial influencer. People be like, you're a loser. But there's just no scope of what dollars or success rate means there. I think it's very old school and traditional and it still lives and breathes in the very old school traditional cultures like real estate, like attorney work, like accounting work, like banking work. That is how, like Adam said, you really do know the impact and probably the manager's power of the decision maker in those establishments. Like, you know, the president of the bank has a lot of pull, you know, that the partners at law firms have a lot of pull. So in those, in those worlds, which I can't stand, he's right. It does have an establishment of credibility and power. Do you think
2: that they hold the weight that people put in them?
0: No, hell no. And the thing is, like at a at a bank, right? There, are, people say, "Oh, I'm a VP of a bank." There's a
2: thousand. There's literally ten thousand VPs. I think that there's so many examples of like they almost don't exist. Like here's the, here's a total wild example. When I heard him say this, it made me think of like you ever been in an airport and you see like the 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 velvet ropes or like a or a nightclub, uh, the velvet ropes at a nightclub or like the barriers, yeah, 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 like the ropes. Of course, yeah. People, it's like the highest standard of authority in human society <laughs> is a rope. It's Yo, like at an airport. Nope, everyone can't go follows in there. the rules. Gotta, gotta go around. Gotta go around the rope. Isn't Nightclub. It's one red velvet people rope treat for it like VIP. It's like fire. Like can't touch it. Gotta go around it. Yeah. It's like, it's oh, like can't go respect. in the there's a red rope here. So that's like, for me, it's like, what do we view is like, is a society sometimes it's like titles. It's like a title is a title, but the people below the title, they're the ones doing all the work. Yeah. Like the value of people, within different industries with titles, like, I think we're moving away from it a little bit. They'll always be there in corporate America because they need to dangle the care in front of your face. But always, always respect the people below the titles and give them their values. You look to, like, network and and move up in career navigation. All,
0: like you said, treat literally, treat... Everyone equal. It doesn't matter how large or small their title is. You never know where they'll be tomorrow. And even if they are in the same position they always are in, your title doesn't define you. The last thing I'll say is I know a lot about HR and a lot of these companies, and they'll give you titles because they don't want to compensate you because people are so Mm -hmm. damn stupid. Mm -hmm. They'll be paid less. They'll get less benefits just so they can walk around with their ego saying they have a certain title, which is so dumb. I want to give one quick example here. I'm in Rochester, New York this weekend. I think it's a perfect example for commercial real estate and then we're going to wrap. Buddy Jordan Morganstern, this is example example of what he did. He saw in and Jordan and Adrian Morganstern saw an area where there was a bakery that was completely shot. It was it was a bakery. He's like these guys can't be producing much money. There clearly there's no upkeep here, but it was in a really good growing area of Rochester. So what did he do? He went to the bake, he found out who owns that building directly and said, "Listen, It looks a little unserviced. I'll give you a premium offer for it. And there was no brokers. No one was involved. The guy took the offer. He's got this bakery that's a dump. Jordan has the connections to get a developer in there. They clean it out, upkeep it. And now it's a beautiful restaurant spitting off a ton of money. That is really how you can do well. When you can be, you have your eyes on the prize. You can see a vision before it happens. You can contact the owner directly through networking and then you can make that come to fruition. I think that's a cool, cool example. We were there last night. It was pretty sweet.
2: It was just like uh, AG said just be obsessed with what you do. Be obsessed right? with Study what you do. Study, research, be have your own system, do all those things. Like have your own eye for what you see is like value and importance. So that's a perfect example. Shout out, Jordan and Adrian. Uh, before I let you go, you know, we usually talk reality TV, real estate episode. What's your favorite HGTV show? Because I know you've watched them all. Wow. HGTV. TV show. Putting you on the spot. TV. Um
0: I like the Brothers. I like the Property, Property Brothers. brothers. I do. Like I, my think like, I think it's actually pretty good. How about you? That's one of my doppelgangers. Yeah, I agree with yeah, that. I, I always have, get that all the time. Do you have one that you like? Yeah. Love her to list it. I was going to literally say, in uh what's her name? Jillian Harris is the host of, I think, Love Her List in Canada. Canada. Yeah.
2: Jillian. I think Jillian is, or no, Hillary. Hillary is the American one. Yeah, I'm Team Hillary. Jillian all
0: day. Harris' his name has come up way too many times this podcast for us not to bring her on. We're I bringing her agree on. More. All right, it's happening. Anything else, brother?
2: No. Good to see you.
0: Good to see you. Good to be here. We are out in Rochester, New York. You gotta love it. I want to end this podcast with this. If nothing else, please go to Adam and Ravens Instagram and wish them a huge congratulations because they just had their first newborn. They're incredible people with such amazing character. They're both driven individuals. They're part of the Bachelor franchise. They're our family. They'll always be family. And a huge congratulations to Adam and Raven. We love you guys. And we hope that all of you thought this was another episode you couldn't afford to miss. Please remember to give us five-star rating. Give us your feedback. You want a commercial real estate? We gave it to you. We'll see you next Monday on another episode of Trading Secrets, one you can't afford to miss.